In the Gospel of Matthew, we are in chapter 25, and we're going to be looking at verses 31 through 46. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Greg will get one to your seats. You can follow along with us. We've been looking at chapters 24 and 25, and it's really been uh, our prophetic chapters, what's going to happen in the last days, the signs of Jesus' coming, and, and Jesus has given us prophecy with great detail what's happening leading up to his return and when he returns. And so we actually finish up this section this morning and uh, we'll begin next week with uh, the road to the cross as Jesus is going to be arrested and and crucified for us. So uh, chapter 25, verses 31 through 46 this morning. Jesus speaking, he says, and starting in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as the shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. And naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Surely I say to you, Inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. A lot to unpack there. The title of my message this morning is The Deciding Factor, dot, 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 Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your grace and mercy in our lives, for bringing us together as your church. Lord, we know that you have your desire to speak to us us individually, but as a church as a whole. And so we pray, Lord, that we would have ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. We ask your blessing upon our children down in the children's ministry, that you would speak to their hearts as they're learning your word and, and, and seeking to apply it in their lives. Lord, we do pray if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their hearts completely to you, they're not born again this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would especially touch their heart today. They would come to know you as Lord and as Savior. So we commit our time to you. We ask your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Many people today live their lives like the high-rise worker who decided not to wear a safety harness one day. As you can imagine, that was the day that he slipped and fell. And as he was falling, a man on the 21st floor cried out to him, How you doing? To which the man responded, So far, so good. So often, we live our lives thinking, without thinking about the consequences of our decisions. 
And, and even today in our country, today we have many choices, decisions that we make on a daily basis. Life is filled with choices. From the moment you get up in the morning to the time your head hits your pillow, you've made hundreds, maybe even thousands of decisions. That's why it's so hard really to go into some restaurants. I shared about this a, a couple of weeks ago. When you go to the Cheesecake Factory, I heard they're closing their stores, by the way, but, but you go to a Cheesecake Factory and you try and figure out their menu. I mean, it's huge. I mean, it's like a telephone book. It's so big. For those of you that are younger, telephone book was a book we had years ago. The names and addresses, you had to look up to it before the internet. Decisions, choices, we make them all the time. Yet the most important decision a person can ever make is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Because truly we are living in times that are changing very rapidly and very radically. Really, the political and religious landscape of our world has changed enormously. We also see, like never before, the division within our country. Yes, politically, but more so of morality versus immorality. Yet what we're looking at this morning is Jesus Christ is going to bring about even the biggest division here. Because here in Matthew 25, we've been looking at these parables, and in each parable... In each case, it's resulted in an unalterable division between two groups of people. The division is between those who are ready and those who are not. And, and the Lord knows those who, who are not. And, and these are stories about the final judgment. And actually, the root meaning for the word judgment is division. In the case of the bridesmen, we saw in the beginning of the, of the chapel, bridesmaids rather, five go to the banquet, five are shut out. In the case of the servants, two are commended and one uh, is judged. In the case of the sheep and the goats, as you'll see, the sheep inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for them, while the goats receive the eternal punishment. Now let's set this scene a little bit more before we get into these verses and, and dissect what they're saying. If you've been with us the last month or so, you know that Jesus is there on the Mount of Olives. He's giving a sermon to his disciples in response to questions they had asked him. And we pointed out that when Jesus ascended into heaven, that's where he left from, from the Mount of Olives. Acts chapter 1 verse 11 says this, Men of Galilee, the, the Jesus after he went up into heaven, two men appeared. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you in heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now you might want to take note of, you don't need to turn there, but Zechariah chapter 4 that's when Jesus Christ returns. He will actually set his feet back on that Mount of Olives. And Zechariah points this out way before Jesus is even first coming. The prophet Zechariah tells us that when Jesus re returns, sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, uh, uh, the, 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 the mountain is going to split in, in two. A large valley is going to form. There's going to be this large opening in the ground that the topography of the ground is going to change. Perhaps there's going to be an earthquake. We don't know. But a large valley is going to be formed. And that's where we get the prophecy given in Joel chapter 3 verse 1 and 2 that says this. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. Joel there refers to this valley of Jehoshaphat. It's also called the valley of decisions. It's a valley of decisions that we are reading about here in Matthew 25. The place where Jesus will judge the nations prior to the beginning of what's called the millennial reign of Christ. 
Interesting that the name Jehoshaphat literally means the Lord is judge. And that's why uh, Joel refers to it as the valley of decision. But let me point out the only person who's going to be making any decisions that at that time is going to be Jesus Christ. He is the deciding factor. No people will be making any decisions at that point. No choices will be given them at, at that point. Whatever decisions they made prior to this point is what's going to stand. And then Christ will come and make a separation of the people and judgment will come. Now the time of this judgment is placed at the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's important for us to understand that. There are those who believe that there's going to be this one big, you know, grand general judgment at the end of the world. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there are many different judgments that are still to come. They don't all happen at once. And they include a number of different participants. There's going to be humans and angels, heaven and earth. In fact, even death and hell itself is going to be judged. But for the point of our message this morning, I want to point out just these three judgments that I want to look at. The three, uh, if you're taking notes. Number one, there's a judgment of Christ. There's a judgment of nations. And then there's the great white throne judgment. The judgment of Christ, we've looked at this briefly over the last couple of weeks is known as the Bema Seat Judgment. And it's kind of like the athletes who, you know, it's a reward ceremony in the Olympics. The athletes come forward, there's a stand, there's a judges there, and they say, on behalf of, of what you've done, what you've achieved, here's your reward for this. And that's a judgment seat of the rewards of those given to believers in Jesus Christ. We're not going to be judged for our sins there. Jesus already paid the price for our sins at the cross. But 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us, For we, we must all appear before that judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That will happen as soon as we are raptured as a church out of here. Now the judgment seat of Christ are for members of the New Testament church. These are people who have trusted Christ as their Savior from the day of Pentecost until the coming of Christ at the rapture of the church. Then there is the judgment of the nations, number two, and that's what we're looking at this morning. When Jesus Christ returns at the second coming, it'll be at the end of the great tribulation period, and he will return in judgment of the nations. Look at verses 31 and 32. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of glory All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Now we'll look at more of that in a moment, but that's the judgment of the nations. Then the third judgment is what's called the great white throne judgment. This happens after a thousand years after Christ's second coming, after the judgment of the nations. Now that involves all the wicked dead who are resurrected and they will stand before Christ who sits on the great white throne. The books will be opened and if your name is not found written in that book of life, then they're thrown into the lake of fire. Also called Gehenna or the second death or eternal hell. So you have the judgment of Christ, you have the judgment of the nations and you have the great white throne judgment. Now again, the judgment of the nations is what we're talking about this morning, and I've divided our text into three points. Again, if you're taking notes, we're going to see number one, a great division, number two, a great deliverance, and number three, a great departure. Number one, a great division. Look again at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. Now He's going to 
Jesus is going to come back. He's going to sit on his throne of glory. It's pointed out in the both the Old and the New Testament that the throne of glory refers to the throne of David there in Jerusalem. Then in verse 32, we read that all the nations would be gathered before Jesus and he's going to divide them up into two groups and he calls them their sheep and goats. And then we read in verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him and it will separate them one from another as the shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Interesting that word for nations there in the Greek is the word ethnos. It's where we get our English word ethnic from and it's a word that's used a lot in scripture. It's nearly translated a hundred times as Gentiles. So the nations that Matthew or Jesus is referring to here are the Gentile nations of the world who will still be alive at the end of the great tribulation period when Jesus Christ returns. And then in verse 33, and he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. So these nations are going to be divided in two, sheep and goats. The sheep are the Gentiles, again, who, who are alive, who have come to Christ. They've survived the tribulation period. Now they are alive at the second coming of Jesus Christ, and he's going to invite them into that thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. The goats, on the other hand, are those who survived the tribulation period, but they're not believers. They've not made a commitment to Jesus Christ, and they'll be sent away immediately into destruction. Now, these goats, these unsaved, for many of them, they would have taken the mark of the beasts. I think we've all heard about that. Non-believers all know about the mark of the beast. Oh, I've seen the omen. I've got the 666. And they've seen the movie, you know. But but the reality of it is, there will be an identification mark that the Antichrist will require through his world government for every person to receive. It'll be, it'll be some sort of mark either on the, the forehead or the right hand. It's a mark of allegiance to the Antichrist. And without this mark, you'll not be able to buy or sell. Now, most of the goats will take the mark, but not necessarily all of them. It's interesting to me, during the time people can refuse to follow Antichrist, refuse to take his mark, but they also can refuse at the same time to follow Jesus Christ and give their hearts to him. But you see, the bottom line is with Jesus, an indecision is a decision. Jesus says, you're either for me or against me. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father which is in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father which is in heaven. There's no neutrality with Jesus Christ. You're either a sheep who is following him or you're a goat in rebellion towards him. No neutrality, no neutral ground. Now, while these people are called the nations, we need to understand that Jesus is not going to, to judge them as, as nations, so to speak. He's not going to judge the USA, Italy, then Japan as a whole. But, but individually, those coming out of these nations, he's going to judge them uh, uh, individually. Obviously, some nations may have more sheep than goats in them, and, or vice versa. So we have this division between the sheep and the goats. But there's also a third division that I want to point out, and we find that down in verse 40 that Jesus talks about. He says in verse 40, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Now, who are the brethren that he's referring to? I believe he's referring to the Jewish people. So you have the sheep, which are the saved Gentiles, the goats, the unsaved Gentiles, and my brethren who are the Jews that are saved. Now, Jesus, of course, was born Jewish, so it's in that regard that the Jewish people are his brethren. According to Revelation chapter 12, around the midpoint of the Great Tribulation period, Satan is going to intensify his persecution against the Jewish people. 
He's going to hunt them down. He's going to harass them. He's going to persecute them. And he will do everything in his power to destroy them. And at midpoint of this great tribulation period, we read that Satan will ultimately be banned and barred from entering heaven and accusing anybody. Right now, he can go in and out of heaven and accuse us before for the Lord. But he's going to lose that privilege at that point. And he's going to realize at that point that his time is short, his days are numbered, and he's going to use every effort to hurt and persecute the Jewish people, which will be a time unrivaled in history. Even the reign of Adolf Hitler will seem like nothing compared to what he's going to do. Now, I am actually of the opinion that these brethren that Jesus talks about here uh, are even more specific than just the Jewish believers during the tribulation period. Because if you think about it, everybody's in the same boat. For those that go into the great tribulation period that are not raptured, if you then become a believer, you don't take the mark of the beast, which you wouldn't do, then there's going to be consequences, as I said already. You wouldn't be able to buy or sell or anything like that. Life is going to be extremely difficult. You're going to be on the run. You're going to be hunted down. And in, in that respect, it's going to be hard for anybody during that time. And so I'm of the opinion that the brethren spoken of here, Jesus is referring to, is more specific. I think that he's referring to the 144,000 Jewish evangelists whom the Lord is going to ordain and raise up to proclaim the everlasting gospel during that seven-year tribulation period. You find that in Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 14. There's, there's 12,000 from each of the tribe of Israel, 144,000. And they're going to receive a special mark, a seal from the Lord that says they belong to God. It's as though God is saying, you know, personal property of God. And the Bible teaches that they're going to proclaim the gospel during the tribulation period. And we're told in Revelation 7 that because of their efforts, a great multitude of people from all over the world will turn to faith in Jesus Christ. And so because of their efforts, uh, the gospel is going to go forth at that time and many will be saved. So that's why I think that that's who Jesus is really referring to here in this text and helping other, uh, other believers as a reference to those 144,000 Jewish evangelists. But really the primary focus of this passage is the other two groups that are identified here, the sheep and the goats. First, Jesus talks about the sheep that are helping these Jewish people during the tribulation period, and then we'll talk about the goats. And this brings us to point number two, a great deliverance. Let's go back and read about these sheep. Look at verse 34 through 40. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. So now we see a great deliverance. These sheep are delivered to enter into the millennial reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom. They've survived the horrors of the great tribulation period. And this passage describes these group of Gentile believers, these sheep having extended many kindnesses and, and helps to the Lord by helping other people. And so they, they ask Jesus to, to, to explain. 
And Jesus says, don't you realize every time you risked your life, every time you took an extra step forward to help one of these Jewish brethren of mine, you really were doing it as unto me. Now here's a, a very, very important point I don't want you to miss. Notice with me that on this particular judgment, Jesus is not necessarily commending them for their great works spiritually. You know, he's not saying, oh, because of your great preaching or because of your, 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 your prayers or because of your, your performing miracles. It was because of this very simple task, an incident of compassion and kindness towards other people, providing food, water, clothing, encouragement to other people. Now think about how this can apply to us. Most of us have not been called by God to be a teacher or a preacher. Some of us have, maybe, but, but primarily most of us haven't. But yet there's something that God has called each one of us to do as believers, and that is to put our faith into action. Put feet to our faith. James talks about that in James chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, when he says, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Think about for a moment what it's going to be like for these believers that come to faith in Christ during the great tribulation period. Most of us won't be there. I hope none of us will be there. But, but, but think about what life will be like during the Great Tribulation period. The believers, they are on the run from the Antichrist. They can't buy. They can't sell anything. Everybody is looking for them. There are you know, wanted posters all over the place. America's most wanted. There are groups of people that are out to kill them. And they're hiding. And, 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 and they're struggling. And they have very little for themselves to survive on. And now they're taking what they have some of the provisions, some of the clothing, some of that, and they're sharing them with others. Think about how difficult that will be. Now compare that to where we are at today. <laughs> how difficult is it for us to really help somebody else? It's not that hard. Only takes just a little bit of effort. Now again, if you're a Christian believer right now, you're not going to have any part in this judgment that we're reading about, but neither can we say that it doesn't apply to us. Because it does. Because we have opportunity after opportunity to put our faith into action right now. Because once we've been raptured, once we're out of here, we no longer have any more opportunities. Our opportunities will be gone. That's it. Reminds me of the story about Queen Mary years ago who got caught in a rainstorm and she went to the porch of this home and she knocked on this door. Now, understand when the queen goes out, she doesn't look like she's a queen. She, she kind of goes incognito so no one would recognize her. Otherwise, you know, she couldn't really go out. But she got caught in this rainstorm and she knocks on this door and this lady answers the door and, 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 and the queen says, can I trouble you to borrow an umbrella uh, from you? I promise I'll return the umbrella promptly to you. Well, of course, the woman didn't recognize that it was the queen, and she went, instead of giving her her nice new umbrella, understandably so, she dug in her closet and found out an old, tattered umbrella that she had, and, and uh, you know, she apologetically handed it over to the woman that she didn't recognize as the queen, and said, well, this is all I have, hope you enjoy it, sorry, I don't have something better. Next day, there was a knock on the door, and it was, this time, a man wearing a royal uniform, carrying that tattered umbrella, giving it back to this woman, thanking her with a card from the queen, saying, thank you for loaning me your umbrella. I mean, stunned, the woman began to burst into tears. What an opportunity I missed, because I did not give the queen my very, very best. Listen, we have an opportunity right now to give our Lord, our King, the very, very best that we can we need to take those opportunities. 
Now I need to reemphasize this point one more time because it's important. There are those who read this and what Jesus is saying here, and they falsely conclude that, well, uh, this is saying that we can be saved by our good works. If we feed hungry people, and if we give them clothes to wear, and if we go visit them in prison, and if we help them when they're sick, then we get to go to heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying here. And if we don't do those things, then we're going to go to hell. That's not what Jesus is teaching. The Bible is very, very clear. It's by grace we've been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is a gift of God. So this is not teaching salvation by works. He's saying that evidence of your faith and salvation, you're going to help these Jews that are persecuted. These, my brethren, during the Great Tribulation, and those that didn't help them are showing the fact that they are unregenerated. They were never saved to begin with. Now, the kingdom that these saved get into is the 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ. Where look at verse 34. The Lord says, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What a blessing Jesus grants to these, these, you know, tribulation saints, these, these faithful believers that come out of the tribulation to go into the millennial reign of Christ. Now there are many passages all through scripture that talk about the millennium. In the Old Testament especially. But the best New Testament passage is Revelation chapter 20. There we get a pretty good description of the millennium. Six times in Revelation chapter 20, we're told that the millennium will last 1,000 years. Now, by the way, the word millennium is not found in your Bible. If you go to look for it, you're you're not going to find it. It's really two Latin words, uh, which means thousand and year, and therefore we get our word millennium from. So when the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons come knocking on your door, and, and they like to point out that the words millennium and trinity are not found in the Bible, Though those words, what they mean, are clearly taught in the Bible. Rather than argue with them, I simply remind them that the words Jehovah Witness and Mormon are not found in the Bible either. So there you go. But when it comes to the millennium, some Christians say that the Bible is not speaking of a literal 1,000 year reign of Christ. They say it's symbolic. Listen, Revelation 20 could not be more literal. Now another group of believers say, well, Jesus is coming, but not until the end of the millennium. But again, that's not what the Bible teaches. Some people teach that we are in the millennium. i got to tell you, if we are, I'm greatly disappointed. It's not at all what the Bible says it's cracked up to be. Now, I don't have time to go into each and every argument for premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism. But the bottom line is if you use proper grammatical and historical principles of interpretation... I believe you can come to no other conclusion that Jesus Christ will have a literal return, a literal reign on earth that will literally last for 1,000 years. This happens after the battle of Armageddon, after the second coming, after our Lord has returned, and we have returned with Him. Heaven has now come to earth, and the prayer of Christ has been answered, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We as believers will be ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ during those 1,000 years. Now, there are many verses that talk about the millennium. Let me just share with you six characteristics of a millennium. Because sometimes you think, well, if I die, I'm going to go to heaven. I'll be in heaven. I don't want to come back on the earth. And, and, and it's like, no, I mean, I thought we were going to go to heaven. Why are we back on the earth? What are we going to do on the earth? Let me tell you about the millennium and what it's going to be like. There are going to be some verses. There's six of them. Uh, six characteristics of the millennium. Number one, there's finally going to be world peace. No more war, no more conflict, no more nukes, no more threat of nukes. 
you know, Iran and North Korea and Russia and all that stuff going on, it'll be done away with. And I've been asked, well, do you think nuclear war is going to break out before Christ returns? I don't know. But you read some about some of the destruction and the phenomena that, that takes place during the Great Tribulation period. It makes you wonder if there's not some kind of nuclear conflict that's going to take place. But we know this, when Christ comes back, all that will be done away with. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4 says this, He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nations, neither shall they learn war anymore. Finally, there will be world peace. Number two, during the millennial reign of Christ, we also know there will be joy, happiness, and no more disabilities. Listen to Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams will water the wasteland. It will be like the Garden of Eden all over again. During the millennial reign of Christ, number three, people will live long human lives. Those that, that go into the millennial reign. In fact, Isaiah 65.20 says this, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be a curse. So that tells us that life is probably going to be like it was in the book of Genesis. People live five, six, eight hundred years even as it was for many of the old patriarchs in the book of Genesis. Number four, during the millennial reign of Christ, the animal kingdom will be subdued. I like this one. You animal lovers, it's gonna, you're going to have a great time. This is where Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6 to 9 says this, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. No more zoos. No more wild animal parks. Your little boy will say, Mommy, Mommy, can I take the alligator out for a walk? And you go, Okay, honey. Just don't hold it by its head. It doesn't like that, okay? A nursing child will play with a cobra. And you're thinking, Not my nursing child. But, but see, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. It'll be different because Jesus will be ruling. He says he'll be able to go out and pet the lions. Why? Because the curse that has been on humanity because of sin will be lifted. This come because of sin, but then it will be lifted. In fact, Romans chapter 8, verse 19 through 21 tells us, For all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who His children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. How great that will be. During the millennial reign of Christ, Numbers 5, there will be universal justice and righteousness. No more corrupt lawyers, no more activist judges, no more injustices or frivolous lawsuits. Christ will personally rule and reign. Isaiah 9 verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom the order it, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. 
We're also told in Psalm 72, verse 2, He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Jesus will be ruling and reigning universal justice and righteousness. Finally, the last characteristic of the millennium. I think it's one of the, the best. Holiness will prevail. Isaiah 35, verse 8 says, And a great road will go through that once deserted land. It will be named the highway of holiness. Evil-minded people will never travel on it. It'll be only for those who walk in God's ways. Fools will never walk there. It's going to be great. The millennium. Now one more thing we know about the millennium that is very important and that is during the thousand years there is going to have have, uh, us as believers ruling and reigning in Christ. You'll have the Old Testament saints who've been raised up and you'll also have those tribulation saints, those, those that have died, those that were martyred during the great tribulation period. And all of us will go into that millennial period in our glorified bodies. We get these glorified bodies, new bodies that, that never will, you know, they'll just be great bodies. <laughs> never to be sick again, never die. But then you have these Gentile believers, these ones, these, these sheep going into the millennial reign of Christ. Uh, but nothing is said about them receiving any new body at this point. They don't get it till the end of the millennium. So they go into the millennium with us. But they go in in their physical bodies. Now, as I pointed out, their lifespan will be greatly increased and sickness and illness will be decreased and restrained. And therefore, we'll see the birth rate skyrocket at this point. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, because there's a, a, a point in, uh, in Revelation chapter 20 that might be a little bit confusing. This helps us to understand. At the end of Revelation chapter 20, that's when the thousand year millennium time is completed. It says that, that Satan will be loosed from his confinement, from his chains, and he will be turned loose back on the earth again. At the end of the thousand years, he's going to rally a group of people and they will follow him in rebellion against Jesus Christ. And you read that and you think, what is that all about? Are these believers who have changed their mind? What is going on here? Not at all. These are the Gentiles that I was telling about, these sheep going into the millennium in their physical bodies, which means they were able to continue to have children and more children and more children. That birth rate is going to skyrocket with longer lives and so forth. So a lot of babies are going to be born. And as they grow, they don't automatically become Christians just as our own children don't automatically become Christians because of our faith. They will have to make a decision for or against Jesus Christ all on their own. And as incredible as it may seem, some of them, we don't know how many, some of them will refuse to commit their hearts to Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing during this time? That blows me away. They will not be able to rebel outwardly because Christ will be in full control and full authority. He won't allow that to happen. But in their hearts, they're going to be thinking, one day, one day I'm not going to be under His rule. I'm not going to be under His reign. And they're not going to want to surrender their hearts to Jesus. They're, 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 they're not going to be believers. So that when Satan is loose at the end of those thousand years, some of these people, they're going to follow after him. In rebellion. But we know Christ is going to judge them right on the spot. Now, you read that, you hear that, and you go, how can something like that happen? I mean, here is Jesus ruling for a thousand years with perfect righteousness and justice. How would these people not want to follow the Lord? Well, I don't know how to answer that, but just to say that's exactly what happened some 2,000 years ago when Jesus came the first time. I mean, didn't they hear his teaching? Didn't they hear and see the miracles? Didn't they experience the divine love that he brought into the world? And yet how many people rejected Christ back then when they had all that evidence right before them? 
And sadly, the same thing is to some degree is going to happen again at the end of the millennium. Now, let's get back to our text and look at the final section for just a moment. Look now at verses 41 through 46. We get to the goats. Verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. He says, For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Our third and final point, the great departure. Verse 41, Jesus tells us a group of unsaved goats, depart from me. So it's a great departure. Remember, in verse 34, Jesus said to the sheep, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. A blessing to hear that. But the goats, we read in verse 41, Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's an interesting contrast here that we see between the sheep who entered the kingdom that was prepared for them before the foundation of the world and the goats. See, I believe that the Bible teaches that if you're saved, God saved you by His grace, and that you were elected by God, God chose you to be saved. You go, okay. On the other hand, I believe that if you go to hell, you are lost, and you perish, you choose to reject Jesus Christ, that you are responsible, you have no one else to blame but yourself. Notice in verse 41 it says, Then he will also say to those on the left, And depart from me, you curse into the everlasting fire, prepared for, prepared for the devil and his angels. Who's the everlasting fire prepared for? The devil and his angels. But notice two things. It wasn't prepared before the foundation of the world and it wasn't prepared for man. It was prepared for Satan and his demons following his, his rebellion. No one goes to hell because God wants them to go there. The Bible does not teach what is called double predestination. That God predetermines who is saved and God predetermines who will go to hell and we have no choice in the matter. That's not biblical. That's not scriptural. What, bi- what is biblical is this. God saves us by His grace. If we go to hell, it's because we've exercised our free moral choice and we chose not to receive Christ. We resisted His grace and we go to hell, a place prepared for Satan and his angels, not prepared for man and certainly not prepared before the foundation of the world. That's a contract we see here. So if you are a Christian here this morning, you had nothing to do with your salvation. If you are not a Christian here this morning and you go to hell, then you had, had everything to do with going to hell. You can resist God's grace. But you say, well, I don't understand that. Welcome to the club. I don't understand it either. But it's what the Bible teaches. I just thank God that I'm chosen. I just thank God that I'm saved. Well, I have to pray and I have to choose to ask Jesus to forgive me of my sins and I have to put my faith and trust in Him. Yes, absolutely you do. And that's a wonderful thing to do. But after you do, what you find out is Jesus saying, you haven't chosen me, but I've chosen you. Wait a minute. I don't get it. You'll never get it. Just be glad you're chosen. Just believe it. But if you go to hell, don't blame God. If you go to hell, you are responsible 
These people didn't go to hell because they didn't feed the hungry people or visit people in prison or close people. They went to hell because they didn't put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now before we close out this chapter, let's make some final application. For those of us that are truly Christians and believers, this passage reminds us of the importance of putting our faith and, and, and trust in the action, or faith in action. Listen, we can all differ on our position on the last days. And there are some good, strong, mature uh, believers that do. But one thing is clear. Judgment is coming. And until it gets here, Jesus is looking for us while we wait to be faithful. To reveal Him to the world by being gracious and kind. And to demonstrate the love and, and, and nature of Christ by loving and reaching out to those that are hurting. And I don't have to tell you, there's a lot of people that are hurting in this world today. There are neighbors, there are, are co-workers, people that come into the church, people that, that we meet outside the church, people that, that they can't get to church. It's not hard to find hurting people who need help. And the Lord desires to use us to be that vessel, to, to reach them. And oftentimes we pray, and we should, uh, for people, but God may want us to be that answer to prayer. Not just to pray, but to be a part of the solution, to, to reach people with the love of Jesus Christ. And let us never forget that in so doing, when we minister to other people, we are really ministering to our Lord Himself. I like what John Wesley said. He said this, Do all that you can, or do all the good you can, by all the means you can, and all the ways you can, and all the places you can, and all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever, as long as you ever you can. I, I mean, it's, as long as we have opportunity. Let's go for it. Because soon those opportunities are going to be gone. There'll be no more chances for us as believers once Jesus comes to take His church home. What do you mean His church? Only those who are born again today. When will He come? At any time. Let me tell you, there's no prophecies. There's no signs that have to take place. We're not looking for the abomination of desolation. We're not looking for the sun to turn black and the moon to to stop shining and, and the stars to fall out of heaven. We're looking for Jesus Christ to come back for His church. And that's the next uh, thing to happen in that prophetic timeline is the rapture of the church. And that could happen at any given moment. I've said this before. Jesus could come back for His church even before I finished my sermon this morning. He could come back right now. Right now. Now. One of these days I'm going to say that in a sermon He's going to come back. It could be in the last few seconds of the service the rapture could happen. And if you're not born again, you're not in the kingdom of God, then you're going to be forced to go through the great tribulation period. Yeah, there'll be opportunities to come to Christ after the rapture of the church, but at that point in the great tribulation, you're going to have to die for your faith. It's been rightly said, if you can't live for Christ now, what makes you think you can die for Him then? But when it comes to, to the second coming of Christ, as it was for those five foolish virgins, the door's going to be shut and it's not going to be opened again. As it was the man who buried his talent in, in the dirt, he'll be cast into outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And as it is where the goats, where Jesus says, depart from me into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels, it'll be for all those who don't come into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Man, so much better to know that you know that you know that you're saved now than to take your chances. To know that you're born again, that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, that you've accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord, you've repented of your sin and you put your faith and trust in Him. 
See, as we close this morning, as we enter in a time of communion, let me ask you, if Jesus Christ came today for his church, would you go up in the rapture? If the, ha- the rapture happened right now, this moment in the church, would you be the only one sitting here and everybody else gone? <laughs> I mean, that would be so freaky, wouldn't it? I mean, poosh, whoa, everybody's gone. I'm sure when it happens, there's going to be some churches that are just going to keep going like nothing's ever happened. Some pastors that will keep preaching. Yeah, yeah. But this morning, I need to ask the question, are you ready? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior? Are you born again? Because then once you are, and if you are, then the question becomes, what opportunities are you going to choose to serve the Lord? Are you faithful? Are you ready? Are you really faithful with the doors God's opened for you, the opportunities He's given to you? Are you doing faithfully what He's called you to do? See, our life should show the evidence that we are saved, so that if someone is hungry, we would feed them. If someone is naked, we can clothe them. If someone is in prison and is sick, we visit them. And as believers, we should be making a stand, a stand against abortion, a stand against the sin of adultery, the sin of homosexuality. Speak out against the sin, not the sinner. Why? Because that's what Christians do. That's what we should do. And we should do it in love and grace. So are you ready? Are you serving? And are you faithful? See, we're going to end our time of communion. Really, a time of communion is a, is a time to remember what Jesus did for us. It, it, it's remember when, when Jesus tangibly showed his love for us by dying on the cross. When we partake of communion, we do it, the Bible says, in remembrance of him until he comes again. Now, I don't know if you have a loved one that has gone home to be with Jesus and, and, and heaven, but from time to time, you may pull that old photograph out of a box of pictures and, and you look at that picture of them. You go, oh, I remember when that was taken. Oh, I remember this person. Oh, all that they did for me growing up. Maybe it's a parent. How wonderful this person was. How, how much I love them. That's what Jesus is asking us to do at the communion table. To remember, to take a look at him. Remember what he's done for us. He paid the price for our sins. The love that he has for us. That's why communion is only meant for believers in Jesus Christ. A non-believer is like looking at a picture of someone you don't know. What's the point? In fact, you are warned not to partake of communion if you are not a believer. We're told in 1 Corinthians 11.27, For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until He comes. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. So examine our lives. We want to make sure first and foremost we're a follower of Jesus Christ. Ask Him to forgive, your, forgive you of your sin. But as believers, examine our lives as we come to the communion table. Yes, communion is for believers, but not perfect believers. If it were, then none of us could receive communion. It doesn't say you have to be worthy to receive communion. It it does say not to receive it unworthy in an unworthy manner, which means don't disrespect what it represents. The elements aren't holy, but our God, whom it represents, are. So I look at my life and I say, where, I see, say, Lord, where do I need to be spiritually? Where am I at right now with my walk with the Lord? Have I been allowing this world to, to mold me into its shape? Or have I been allowing the Holy Spirit to mold me into His shape? It's a time to examine our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this time this morning. Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here that does not know You, Lord, 
that they would make sure that they know that they know you. They would turn from their sin this morning. They would say, Lord Jesus, forgive me my sin. I commit my life to you now. I want to be born again. Lord, we know that your word says that he, has a, he who has the Son has life. He who is not the Son has not life. And so when you make that commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, you promise to come into our hearts, to fill us with your Spirit, that we are born again. We're new creatures in Christ. So I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that has not done that, that they would do so this morning as we prepare to receive communion. For us as believers, Lord, we ask that you would examine our hearts and show us, Lord, areas that we might need to purge from our lives. Paul talks about letting the, the weight and the sin that so easily besets us to cast it aside, to let go of. Well, maybe there's some things in our lives that we need to cast aside to let go of that's been slowing us down. Lord, help us as we prepare our hearts for communion to recognize what those areas are, confess it, and turn from them. Thank you for your love and grace. Thank you for this time this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.